Our scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 7. <clears throat> be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, <clears throat> be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not <clears throat> revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here, and we're glad that you chose to worship with us here at Kish. We celebrate Christ and all the precious things that are true in Him. Last week, Bob laid out for us our calling as the people of God. Specifically, in 1 Peter 2.9, it says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession. Our identity, though, is rooted in the purposes God has given us, which is spoken of in verse 12. That when others see us, they glorify God on the day of visitation. So in our passage today, Peter is saying that we need to realize who we are in Christ, which is called, and called to all the things that we listed before, 
when we realize who we are in Christ, we should live that out. It should change how we approach things in life. Peter argues that by doing so, people will come to faith, that they will actually be praising Jesus as he returns. That's a pretty wild picture Peter paints for us. And it should mark the seriousness of what he is saying about who we are and what we do. Today, we're going to talk about how Peter understands the impact our calling as Christians has on our relationships in society and in our households. Through this passage, Peter wants us to understand that how we relate to the governing authorities, to our superiors, and to our family members. Others see Christ and may even realize the gospel message for themselves. I think we would do well to listen carefully to what Peter is trying to say then, so let's dig in. Reading 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So right off the bat, we have some challenging words by Peter. Remember, though, what the reason is. That our conduct, when reflecting the gospel, shines a light for others to see it for themselves. Part of that gospel message is that our sins have been forgiven. That we have been reconciled to God the Father. That because Christ rose from the grave, death has been defeated and we are no longer bound to it. But life everlasting instead. Now I say all of that because it, that it's part of the gospel because the gospel is not insular. It has to be acted upon. How can we possibly say that God's love is so transforming and dynamic that we continue to live like those who haven't experienced this love of God? Now, we do not bring anything to this process. We were dead in our sins, and it is through Christ alone that we are made alive again. You can read more about that in Ephesians 2. But the power of the gospel has always been in how it activates and motivates the person experiencing rebirth which leaves us with a simple question to approach this challenging text with. How does the gospel in me influence or inform how I interact in this context? How should I think about and then act in relation to my governing authorities? Where does the gospel leave me in all of this? All right, well, first, like Peter wants us to, let's understand who we are. Christians are foreigners. We're exiles. We are not in our homeland, Peter says in verse 11. Our kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world, in John 18, 36. But just because we belong to a different, greater kingdom than the one that we reside does not excuse us from following laws. When we lived in California, uh, there was a terrible drought that was going on, and so they had lots of water conservation laws. Uh, So I couldn't just water my lawn because I wasn't originally from California. Uh, No, I still had to obey their laws. And we know that that's not how living in society works. So, uh, in fact, the reverse is opposite as well. I grew up 30 minutes from the Blue Water Bridge, uh, which is a bridge connecting Michigan to Canada. And I don't know how many of you are studied up on Canadian law, but uh, there's one law that many Michigan teens know of and often will take advantage of. And that is that Canada's drinking age is only 19. 
Uh, and so I know many people that upon turning 19, uh, mysteriously wanted to celebrate their birthday in Sarnia, Ontario. Uh, not saying that's a good thing, but it happened. So these examples should point out a couple of things uh, to us. First off, we respect the spaces that we live in. And two, that what is legal in the place that we live is not necessarily legal back home. And in our uh, context, we still have obligations to home. Speaking, of course, of heaven. I'm taking forever to get into the actual text of today's passage, but that's really what Peter is getting at in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. We obey their rules, and we do it because of our commitments to Christ. Who do we obey exactly? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. But this section says we should be subject to every human institution installed by the emperor. Now, before we get excited claiming that we don't have an emperor and therefore we're exempt from this, uh, I think it's clear that Peter is talking about the main governing official. In America, then, that would mean that it's the president of the United States. But then Peter also says that we should be subject to the governor sent by him. But because Peter also says that every human institution... Uh, And in recognition of the fact that our government is structured differently than first century uh, Roman provinces, we should acknowledge that he means all the offices established to help him govern. So in practice, it means that I am subject to the President of the United States, currently to the governor of Illinois, but also to the lady behind the DMV counter or the DNR head. So taking a moment just to recap, we've discussed why we obey, Now, who we obey, but what do we obey? And I think that's what the American church today seems to really want to know, especially in light of COVID and our current circumstances. Typically, those who struggle with a passage like today's hesitate for one or two reasons. One, they hesitate because Scripture teaches to obey God and not man. And two, I think that there's a growing fear that submission to the government will accelerate a loss of religious freedom here in America. Now, to that first point, yes, Scripture does teach us that we need to obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 makes that very clear. But if you look at that verse, do you notice who says that in Acts? That's right, it's our boy Peter, the same one writing the letter that we're reading today. So yes, there is a balance, clearly. But note that Peter still wrote these words, while likely under Nero, who ultimately had him crucified. Remember, too, that Paul essentially writes the same things shortly before his execution by Nero. So the other hesitation or objection happens because of that growing fear that some of our religious freedoms are in danger and will be accelerated by submitting to orders that limit our freedoms. And listen, as Christians, I think it is worthwhile and probably even a necessary thing to sort of gauge a trajectory for where things are going in the world. But we don't do that out of fear. We do it so that we can properly equip ourselves to bring the gospel most effectively to a constantly shifting culture. There's a sense out there, I think, that we need to be wise to what's really going on. And the calls for rebellion, or at least the dismissal of various ordinances, often accompany, at least on Facebook or other social media platforms, some insult, like calling people sheeple. But might I suggest that what Peter seems to imply in this passage is that by freely submitting, we actually still retain our freedom. And I'll add that the particular insult of uh, sheeple levied against others is especially odd to me when coming from Christians. There's an irony there in calling people to disobey for God's sake 
and disparaging people uh, by inadvertently likening them to a sheep. We worship a God described as a sheep, a sheep that Scripture tells us in Isaiah 53 was silent before the slaughter, obedient even unto death, as Philippians tells us. So I know that this is not what is meant when Christians call people sheeple, but surely you can understand how it sounds awfully a lot like that we should not be like Christ and how we should disobey Scripture, but for the sake of God and the gospel. What I say to this group of people then is that Peter, Paul, and even Jesus all lived through what our worst fears realized looked like, and still they practiced peaceful submission. So to wrap up this section, context matters. And what we can take from Scripture is that we are to submit to the authorities unless they command us to act contrary to God and his commands. Now, that doesn't answer all of our questions as to what exactly we should do. But two guiding principles uh, in this are that we want to obey these authorities as much as we can while still being faithful to Scripture. And whatever we end up doing, we must honor God the authorities, and Peter goes so far as to say, everyone. By doing so, we exhibit the proper attitude before God, fearing him and acting accordingly, according to verse 17. This radical submission, it preaches Christ to people, and it points them to a kingdom beyond our own worlds. All right, so that was a super easy section. Nobody has any troubles with that, so we'll move on to the next. Uh, But maybe you think Peter or I are going a little too far, uh, to which I just have to say, buckle up, because Peter's about to get a lot more radical. So, uh, reading now chapter 2, verse 21. Or sorry, starting at verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But what you do, what is good and suffer if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you are called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I'll start by saying that I'm sorry for bludgeoning you with the word of God today, as this is a lot to take in all at once. But the challenges here are for our good, and I pray now that the Spirit sustains us as we continue on. So Peter is addressing slaves at this point, uh, and what their conduct should look like if they hope to model Christ. So remember, too, that Peter also said that we are to be slaves for Christ back in verse 16, and living as servants of God, some passages will say. Logically, then, Peter expects all of us to listen closely to what he has to say, since we're all to be slaves in one sense. Another thing to know is that there are two sorts of slaves, generally, in the Greco-Roman world. There are those owned by the state, uh, and then household slaves, and these were the more common ones. But slavery back then was not quite the same as what we think of uh, in American history, but it was just as susceptible to all sorts of uh, abuses and, and horrors that we've learned about in our own history. The biggest difference is that there was a lot more power 
and autonomy that a household slave had. Often they were in slavery somewhat by choice, at least in as much choice you have when you have debts that need to be paid. Um, But generally, unless you were a prisoner of war, you probably entered into the arrangement yourself. Anyways, so just know that there are some similarities between our less ancient slavery system and the one that Peter is addressing here. But moving on, Peter, he looks at these slaves in their situation, and he wants them, and us, to model Christ in it. Just like we should be submissive to the government, Peter wants slaves to be submissive to their masters. Yikes, that doesn't sound good today. Well, let's see what Peter follows that up with. Show them respect, whether they're good and gentle or unjust. Well, that didn't smooth things over very well, did it? So is Peter just off his rocker? Does he just not understand? Like, how can he say these sorts of things? Surely he can relate to injustice. So why would he say this? Well, this passage, it doesn't sound great to us today, and it has been abused in the past. American slaves were given Bibles that would remove passages, speaking of freedom, and they would actually highlight passages like the one that Peter uses here today. However, one of the passages that would be missing from those Bibles would be 1 Corinthians 7.21, where Paul tells slaves that they should seek freedom if they can. Well, that's some important context. It seems that we can at least say that Peter is not opposed to them legally getting their freedom. However, given that he tells them to submit, he does seem to prohibit running away, which Paul also says in Philemon, and that they shouldn't try to overthrow their masters. So what is Peter getting at then? You know, the first section of our passage today, it challenged the zealots' attitudes, essentially saying that political revolution is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. We can probably understand that for a slave listening to the words of Jesus about how social order is flipped in the kingdom of heaven, that perhaps many would be dreaming of being freed from their physical bondage. But this is not what Peter calls for, nor Paul in other passages. What goal does Peter have then? The goal of our entire passage today, as well as the whole book of 1 Peter, is that our conduct reflects the realities of the kingdom of heaven, even when they are not physically present with us. We put our faith in Christ, we anticipate his return, and we live as though he is coming soon. We are hearing this passage in the time where everyone in this church, at least, is suffering. There's COVID-19, there's the loss of our dear Elizabeth, and many of us have private sufferings and sorrows on top of those. Peter speaks to suffering unjustly, but I'll expand it to suffering in any capacity because I think the point still stands. It uh, it says, for this is a gracious thing. When we endure these things for God, there's a difference between enduring suffering and seizing hold of it. The difference is between helpless subjection and striving and between fatalism and worship. We may not be slaves today, but we understand suffering and we understand and experience injustices in our lives. Peter uses slaves because this is probably a common experience to them. But his principles apply to any relationship. So let's think about this for today. Peter says, we haven't done anything remarkable when we suffer the consequences of our sins. I shared on Facebook a report that we got from Josiah's teachers that while refusing to wash his hands, he was rolling on the floor. And while he was doing that, he knocked over two other kids who then landed on his head and kind of roughed up his face. So now he is no saint uh, if he were to be patient with those who fell on him. Why? Because he received the due penalty of his error, as Scripture would say. However, 
there are times that we are living like Christ and we still experience negative consequences. Perhaps we're trying to do the right thing at work, but a coworker misinterprets our motives in an awful way, causing stress and tension between yourself and other coworkers. Perhaps there are people talking about you behind your back. Or perhaps you find yourself in a situation like a friend of mine. She's in an abusive marriage, literally fearing for her life at times. She took her kids and fled. Because of the kids, they still had to be in contact, but, uh, and, and he tried manipulating everything he could. This man was pretty well off, and my friend fled from a gorgeous home to living in an old rental house. I remember her telling me that she was not going to fight him for material stuff. And I think he sensed that he was losing control over her. So then he demanded that she give up her van, her only vehicle suitable for driving everyone in her family, and one that he had no use for. And if I remember correctly, I think he immediately sold it for well under market price. She was a school teacher. He wasn't paying for support. It was an awful situation. But beyond the initial frustration of very suddenly having to hunt for and pay for a new vehicle, my friend simply said, fine. Now, she wasn't fine. She didn't know how she was going to pay for this. Uh, but she trusted God with the process. She began thinking through how God was using this situation for her. It was the last thing he had hold over her. And while there were a few minor incidents after the fact, the battle that lasted for over 10 years had just sort of quietly calmed. Now, I have no idea how this man understood these actions by my friend. I imagine that there had to be a sort of bewilderment, uh, as well as some frustration, that she wasn't going to play the games that he wanted her to play. But I know how her actions affected me. She would tell me these stories, often in tears, and there's probably some big thing every other month that happened. And it infuriated me, and I wanted justice for her, and I still do. But she experienced a level of wickedness that I've rarely, if ever, seen. But she endured it, trusting in Christ for vindication, and she refused to sin in her battles with him. As a young man, this was a powerful testimony to the greatness of God. I saw Christ in her, and it strengthened my own faith, my own resolve. And this is exactly what Peter is hoping for. This is his desired outcome. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leading you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we suffer and choose to do so for God, which is something that no one can take away from us. We become like Christ and we serve as a witness to our Lord. And shouldn't we suffer for Christ? Peter explains that Christ suffered for us, so why shouldn't we suffer for him? Okay, I want to suffer for him. But how did Christ do it? He remained perfect, refusing to sin. Our passage says there was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't lie to get himself out of the situation, nor did he spread lies about his enemies. When he was reviled, he didn't insult them in return. He didn't threaten them when, he had, when uh, they attacked him. But instead, he handed himself over to the earthly judges while trusting the true judge for vindication. Notice what it says there in the second half of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, referring to the Father. He suffered trusting the Father. And we ought to suffer trusting the same thing. So I want to briefly look back at the first section to a critical verse that we didn't discuss. 
So if you look at verse 16, it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Of course, in that immediate context, Peter is talking about doing good works in society uh, uh, rather than wrongly disobeying the government and then trying to pass it off as a good and righteous thing. But it applies just as much uh, to this situation here. When injustice enters, it can feel righteous to rebel against it and to fight fire with fire. After all, it's evil. Why shouldn't I do what I can to make sure wickedness is extinguished and no longer has the ability to harm again? Perhaps a friend shared something private with someone that you asked not to be shared. We can easily justify to ourselves a response where we share sensitive information about them. Maybe we justify spreading a rumor. Or maybe you have a situation where a family member favors your sibling's children over yours. So you then withhold love from their children. Friends, we are called to live as Christ did. And we have been given all we need to do so. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In our broken situations where we crave righteousness and justice, the answer is not unrighteousness and injustice. These responses reject the gospel because it betrays the transformation that comes from recognizing that Christ overcame all things so that we too might live righteously. We were broken, but as verse 24 continues, says, By his wounds you have been healed. We aren't broken anymore. We are no longer lost because our faithful shepherd has brought us back to himself. If we were to modernize this statement by Peter a bit, it seems fair to me to say that Peter says, We were sheeple, blindly falling into the rhythms of the kingdom of this world, multiplying one sin into many. We were lost sheep, fueling the flames that now scorch the earth. Christ is our suffering servant, though, as seen in Isaiah 53. And because he suffered and died for us, we should be willing to suffer for him when suffering comes. We see the brokenness and corruption in the world, and we desire for a reversal of these things. The revolution that we long for does not come by acting as the world does, but through active, intentional submission as Christ our Lord modeled. We should know this. The reversal of sin in our own hearts came through the active, intentional submission to death on a cross from Jesus Christ our Lord. We continue on now uh, to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things, like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside your heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life 
so that your prayers will not be hindered. All right, so two tough sections down and one more to go. Just like the others, there's a lot here. Uh, We can't possibly cover it all, but there's a few things that we want to talk about to understand the context better. So first of all, there's a certain expectation in society of what a household should look like. The woman generally was viewed as sort of queen of her castle uh, and had a lot of authority in how things would be uh, run. The husband really was just to oversee uh, and make sure that things were running as well as they should be. But it was the wife usually deciding what needed to be done around the house. She was the one raising the kids. She oversaw what the servants were doing, etc. In that society, though, the wife was essentially to be an extension of her husband. Plutarch, which is just uh, an ancient writer, uh, he writes that women shouldn't be friends with anyone her husband wasn't friends with. Whatever gods that he worshipped, she was expected to also worship. So looking at this passage then, Peter really isn't saying anything new, but the situation is unique. In the last couple of sections, Peter seems to address the question of how one should act civilly uh, and how one should respond to inflicted injustices. In this section, Peter wants to address how to think about responding at home when your spouse doesn't believe in Christ. Peter argues that everything he has said about the other arenas of life apply here, that you can win someone to Christ through your conduct. Now, there are all sorts of cultural nuances here, but generally Peter is saying that by submission to their unbelieving husbands, these wives are honoring God, and they may even lead their spouse to the gospel truth. Okay, so what does submission mean then, according to Peter? Well, we don't fully know, uh, but we have some operative principles uh, to look at. So he says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that the wives should be respectful and have pure conduct. Verse 4 elaborates a little more, saying that a gentle and quiet spirit is what God values. And then verse 6 says that when wives faithfully uh, submit, they become just like the honorable Sarah, when they do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think this last reference helps, helps us quite a bit, as it likely, likely refers to Genesis 12, where Abraham lies to the Egyptians, saying that Sarah isn't his wife uh, because she's really beautiful and he was afraid that they were going to kill him to get her. Uh, and so what does Sarah do in that situation? Well, she submitted, even though Abraham was in the wrong. The Lord intervened with plagues here, uh, sort of bailing Abraham out of his foolishness. Uh, and I think Peter brings this up, though, because he is addressing what a spouse does with an unbelieving spouse. Sarah wasn't in control of her situation in Genesis, much like many of the wives in 1 Peter also uh, didn't have any control. So Sarah, she's honored not because of her beauty, but because of her desire to honor her husband and the Lord. The wives in Peter's day, they're offered the same challenge, to be gentle, tranquil, respectful. Again, keep all this cushioned in Peter's goal of seeing society transformed for the gospel. We might not know exactly how a woman back then ought to have acted, uh, which can make it really difficult for us to envision our own challenge today. But in all things, however, when we seek to honor God and respect everyone else and use Christ as our model, we're going in the right direction. Peter wraps up this section in verse 7, this time referring to husbands. Most commentators interpret this to mean that these are unbelieving husbands. Uh, Honestly, I don't think that makes a ton of sense, given that Peter's letter is for believers. Uh, I think he is now addressing Christian husbands with unbelieving wives. 
they are challenged to live with their wives in an understanding way. They're to be patient, gracious, assuming the best of them. There's that phrase Peter uses that likely turns heads, though, so let's quickly address it. What does he mean by weaker sex? When speaking of wives being the, or the weaker vessel or partner, obviously it could mean physically weaker. Uh, there might be a sense of being weaker in societal power. Uh, some of the ancient writers would have written that uh, women were emotionally weaker, although I'm not quite convinced of that. Uh, the truth is, I'm not entirely sure, and there's not really a clear consensus on it. However, one thing that we can rule out from Scripture is any sense of ontological inferiority. Scripture teaches that men and women are both created by God and in his image, uh, and thus are equally valuable to God. So we reject any sense of that, uh, but we can't say with certainty what Peter meant exactly. However, his point is made, I think, with the following command, that husbands need to treat their wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. Whatever their quote-unquote advantage is, they need to treat their wives well. To treat them as well as they would treat another believer even. So husbands, you need to treat your wife well today. Give them honor, Peter says. And in saying this, there is an implication that uh, any sort of spousal abuse is in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. And it fails to reflect the realities Christ brings. Even when your wife does not follow Christ, we are called to serve them and to love them. And so Peter uh, imagines this situation, at least it seems to me, of a Christian husband who's praying for his wife that they would come to the faith. But praying for your wife while you're mistreating them is going to kind of hinder your prayers. And I think that's what Peter is saying there. And so Peter, he sees the solution to this as to love her as Christ does, just as the solution is to all the other issues that he brings up. So friends, we've talked about a lot today, and we are called to a difficult task, to submit to others for the sake of Christ. Peter lived in a world where Christians were constantly accused of being rabble-rousers, of being trouble for society, and in some ways they were right. Christ has loosened his army to go to war with the powers and principalities of this world to establish this kingdom here on earth. But there were many ways in which they were wrong. And Peter wanted Christians to be sure to only be raising trouble when it was necessary to do so for Christ. Otherwise, as he says all the way back in verse 15, he wants our good conduct to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen, the world will always hate Christians. We do not serve their gods, nor do we belong to the kingdom of this world. We value different things than this world does. And because that's true, we need to do the opposite of what I think naturally comes to us, which is to stop caring uh, about what they think. We need to care about what they think about us, because we bear the name of Christ. And so I'll just say a couple of things as we close today. First of all, there's this idea out there that manifests itself differently, I think, in different situations. But it's that we need to sort of soften the gospel or God's word. This passage would even seem to support that, perhaps. Uh, but if Christ is our model, then we need to model him, plain and simple. And Christ trusted in the Father, and he trusted in his word. In fact, Christ is the word of God. So when we say things like, well, you know, 
Maybe we shouldn't mention hell uh, to the unbeliever. I just don't think that that would go over very well. We fail to submit to God in the teaching of his word. The gospel loses its luster because what good news is there if it's not bad news? How can I appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for my sins if I don't truly recognize how wicked I am apart from him? Our lifestyles matter, our conduct matters. And of course, there's a time and place for everything. So I'm not saying in every circumstance you need to say these things. But, but we need to ultimately preach the truth because it only works when it reflects the truth and not partial truths. Which leads to my second point, which is that Christians will be hated for things that we believe. But when our conduct is so far above reproach, what can skeptics even say? Well, yeah, sure, Jimmy, he's gracious and loving and generous and compassionate towards everyone, but I don't like his views on X or Y. (laughs) You know, our lives, they need to serve as sockdologers. That's a word most of you probably don't know, but it's my favorite word in the whole wide English language. A sockdologer is basically a response that is unobjectionable. It is a response that shuts down any further need to talk things out. It completely settles a matter. Christ was a living sockdologer. The Pharisees and others, they kept trying to trap him, but everything he said and did just proved them wrong. Peter calls us to live lives as Christ, and so how we act in our relationships matter. We must, for the sake of Christ, be willing to pursue peace and love and to submit to others out of that love. Let the world hate us, but don't give them any reasons that are not in keeping with how Christ lived. When we live in this way, when we treat the DMV lady just as well as we treat our best friend, that is when, uh, when we truly demonstrate what Christ has done for us. When we refuse to sin after being wronged, and we love and we care for our families, What can anyone say about Jesus other than, please, tell me more about your Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your words to us this morning. I just pray that they would uh, imprint uh, upon our hearts, that we would obey them and follow them. I pray for your spirit to give us the courage and the boldness that it takes to know when to submit, when to fight, but also, Father, to uh, no matter what decision we have to make, that we would do it out of respect and love. Uh, and so, Father, uh, this is not easy, especially in today's uh, uh, circumstances, but I just ask that you would help us to be the body of Christ, that our lives would reflect uh, you to the community around us, uh, and that people would not have extra reason to not like us as believers. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.